We're going to look at Psalm 62 today, so I'd encourage you to turn your Bibles there. Before we do that, I just wanted to share some personal thoughts with you. Um, and uh, so I've kind of written them out, so forgive me if I read, all right? Um, I'm 52, my memory's gone, all right? Um, I, I will say that uh, as of today, the uh, average age of the pastoral staff goes way down, and the average height of the pastoral staff goes way up, all right? So the next guy better be like 6'4", all right? Keep that going. Um, it is really good to be with you. It seems like a lifetime ago, but earlier this year in March, only five months ago, uh, I was asked if I would be willing to help the Orange Tree Church Planting Initiative by laboring aside, uh, alongside Denny for the first three months of that ministry. And my response then, um, which probably was to many of you, uh, was this, that I'm willing to do that, but I don't know what it looks like to help something get started for three months and then just kind of wave goodbye. Um, I feel like I said that so many times that it was almost like vain repetition, maybe. But uh, we did go, and the Lord has now given both me and Tricia just a desire to remain with that ministry indefinitely as it continues to grow and take shape as an independent church, and, and we love what God is doing there, and yet we will miss you folks, and um, we love what God is doing here. Um, one of the other things I said early on, I think it was actually the day that we had the commissioning service here for Orange Street, I said this, I don't know if you remember, I said church planting is hard. <laughs> um, my only other experience with church planting was when Trish and I moved to New York City in 2004. That makes me feel really old. That was 19 years ago. Uh, but at the time, I was still a corporate guy. I went up there, and we helped with music, and we did various things. But, I mean, I was working a corporate job, and, and I wasn't, you know, it was just different it, 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 when you're not on staff, I guess you would say. Uh, but we did. We, we moved from Greenville, South Carolina to New York City, lived right in Manhattan. You can imagine that presented its own set of challenges and changes to us. But the Lord was very kind to us, and He grew us during that season. And, and now this church plant, Orange Street Bible Church, is challenging us and growing us in new ways. And I think it's challenging and growing all of us, right? Um, I would say again, church planting is not easy. And I have come to realize, I would say, one thing that's very clear to me is that planting a church 20 minutes away is way more difficult than planting a church two hours away or even 20 hours away. And I think the reason for that is because when they're even two hours away, so even like Miami or 20 hours away, I don't even know where that would be. I was thinking New York City, but it's probably further than that, driving. You, you don't lose people. And, and so you all are making a massive investment into Orange Tree. It's, it's, it's very, very hard. You're investing not only financially, but with people, and that hurts. Uh, no matter how we want to approach that, when people that you love 
leave to go somewhere else, that hurts. And it hurts for those people who are leaving when you leave a place that you love to go somewhere else. And so we all need the Lord's help to navigate the tension we feel between knowing that this is a good and an honorable and an obedient thing to do, but also wondering why it can cause us so much angst at times. The old-timers use this analogy of holding the rope. I don't know if you're familiar with that phrase. Many of you have probably heard of William Carey. Um, Far fewer of you, I imagine, have heard of Andrew Fuller. Uh, Before leaving to go to India, Carey famously told Fuller, he said, I will go down into the pit if you'll hold the rope. And so the missionaries in India and other early fields, they could really concentrate on what they were doing because Andrew Fuller was back home holding the rope and organizing all of these other people to hold the rope. And to carry that analogy a little bit further, and and very transparently here as family, um, I imagine that at times people on both ends of the rope are wondering what's going on, right? So in other words... If it's the, the, the sending ministry, there may be times where the missional ministry takes off in ways that were not expected, and you get a rope burn, right? You ever, that does not feel good. I've, I, I don't like rope pull competitions because it hurts my hands, right? Rope burns hurt. There can also be times where the missional church may feel like this uncomfortable slack in the rope and wonder, like, are they still there? You know, this is, these are the things that we're dealing with. It's a challenge on both ends, and I would echo uh, Rob's comments earlier. It's a challenge that should drive us to our knees in prayer. And so we would ask for your continued prayer and support. And we honor you as the mother church of Orange Tree Bible Church. I think only the mothers in the room truly know the sacrifice of birthing a child and caring for that child. Um, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but when we had our first child, Justin, um, you know what I remember about that day? There was a triple header of NBA games on. And I was like, man, this is awesome. I get to sit here. And she's doing all the work. I mean, it, you know, I, didn't, I did not have a clue, right? Uh, moms, you are truly, like, remarkable. And so Faith Bible Church now has taken this step of birthing a church plan, of being a mother church. And I think you, you, we're going to realize that every church plant is different. They all take on their own personality. We have five kids. They're all different, way different. And so I pray that Faith Bible Church will be greatly blessed as you continue to plant churches. And I pray that Orange Tree Bible Church will be a faithful and trustworthy first child and that our Lord will be honored all along the way. And so that's my prayer. Uh, we love you folks. And uh, we look forward to what God's going to continue to do here at Faith and at Orange Tree. So let me pray now, and then we'll look at Psalm 62. Father, we come to you as very needy people, and yet we come to a God who is incredibly resourceful. Uh, You've given us so many good things. 
and You've given us Your Word, the, the inspired Word, the Scriptures. But most of all, You've given us Christ. And so we want to magnify His name. We want to do that in church planting, and we want to do that even now as we continue to worship You together. I thank You for the time we've already had, the, the singing and the Scripture reading and the prayers. And so would You be with us now as we continue to exalt Your name? And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Psalm 62, let me read it for us. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence, They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. This is God's Word. I heard a phrase this week that I'm sure many of you have heard or even said at times, and it's this phrase, life is difficult. There's your motivational speech for the day, right? That comes from... The opening line of a well-known uh, best-selling secular book, all right, written by a guy named Scott Peck. I'm not quoting Robert Frost, by the way. It's not The Road Not Taken. This is from a book entitled The Road Less Traveled, and he literally opens by saying life is difficult. Life is difficult because troubles are inevitable, outside, within, expected, unexpected. Even when we are doing the quote-unquote right thing, Even when we are, quote-unquote, living by the rules, we are often left puzzled. So how do we get to a place of rest in a world like that? The the sage, uh, Charlie Brown, you know, Charlie, he famously said, I've learned to only dread one day at a time. Surely there's a better way forward than that, right? Right? especially for the believer. But life is difficult because at the end of the day, we are constantly trying to understand how to live in light of eternity while we remain in a very broken temporal world. And this is a significant daily ongoing challenge for every individual. 
Christian and non-Christian alike. We struggle with things like our purpose in life. In other words, why am I here? We could use the word vocation. The etymology of that word is like the voice. What are you called to do? What are you made to do? That causes us angst at times. Finances. Uh, It seems like more than ever we're in more of an uncertain time financially. So maybe you're unemployed or worried about your employment or the stock market is not treating you well or you've maybe even made bad investments. I think life is difficult even in our leisure. And I think this is especially true in a place like Naples, Florida. Um, It's really easy to coast. I like what John Piper says. John Piper says, does the Bible talk about retirement? And he says, yes, it's called heaven. (laughs) Some of you may disagree with me on that. It's okay. We can talk. I actually talked to Piper. He, He knows way more than I do. The point is this. How can we maximize our time here in a difficult world and not just coast and take it easy on the way towards eternity. Life is difficult because of relationships. Perhaps you've been betrayed or abandoned or slandered. Or simply there's just a lack of relationships or a lack of the relationships you, you really think you need or want. Perhaps you're frustrated, you're trying to succeed or make a name for yourself and... That's difficult. You're you're constantly met with disappointment, and the list could go on and on. And this is where the wisdom literature of the Scripture comes and speaks to us in such an applicable way. And so Psalm 62 offers us some great wisdom, sage advice for the struggles of life. Now, I'm going to give you a summary statement of this psalm, and it is probably a run-on sentence. The, 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 the grammar folks in the congregation, you, you know, I, I, but I did my best, okay? Here it is. Life's most unsettling moments present us with unique opportunities to grow in our understanding of the eternal peace and power of God and thereby understand that there is purpose in the pain that God allows and even ordains during the temporal fleeting moments of our lives. I'll read it one more time. Life's most unsettling moments present us with unique opportunities to grow in our understanding of the eternal peace and power of God, and thereby understand that there is purpose in the pain that God allows and even ordains during the temporal fleeting moments of our lives. And the purpose is that we would come to know and embrace the truth that our souls will only find rest in God alone even though we may not fully understand everything He does or why He does it. Even very secular folks understand the conundrum here. For you classic rock fans, there's an artist by the name of Jackson Brown, and one of the songs that he sings, it says this, God is great, God is good, He guards your neighborhood, though it's generally understood not quite the way you would. (laughs) That's actually pretty profound. Right? Uh, sometimes we say, I don't like the way God does things. Well, too bad, you know? Um, life's unsettling moments present us with a wonderful opportunity to get our hearts right, to acknowledge who God is. 
But even the knowledge that God is in absolute control is often not enough to quiet our finite minds and our troubled hearts. We doubt Him. And in this psalm, David was shaken by something. He was vulnerable and things seemed to be going from bad to worse. And so, what did he do? Uh, he, he had what I would call a word-inspired talk with himself. It's interesting, this is one of those unique psalms that's not a prayer. It's, it's kind of like a testimony. We're just getting this window into David's uh, thinking out loud, if you will. What he's doing here is he's doing what Martin Lloyd-Jones has famously said. He's talking to himself, not listening to himself. Talking God's truth to himself, not listening to his own deceptive heart. And so let's look at three points from this psalm today. I'll give them to you right now, and then we'll look at them one by one. First is this, quietly wait for God. Second is patiently hope in God. And third, humbly submit to God. So quietly wait for God. We see this in the first uh, four verses. He is sovereign. He is right. And we should wait quietly or in silence before Him, contemplating all the truths that we know about Him. Calvin says of this this silence or this quietness, he says, the silence intended is, in short, that composed submission of the believer in the exercise of which he agrees and submits the promises of God, gives place to His Word, bows to His sovereignty, and suppresses every inward murmur of dissatisfaction. It's the quietness that Calvin says is being talked about here. And yet the problem is we live in a very, very loud world. Silence is hard to come by. Norman Cousins wrote this in the Saturday Review. Plainly, this is not the age of meditative man. It is a squinting, sprinting, shoving age. Substitutes for repose are a million-dollar business. Silence, already the nation's most critical shortage, is almost a nasty word. Modern man may or may not be obsolete, but he is certainly wired for sound, and he twitches as naturally as he breathes. You know what's amazing about that quote is that is from 1962. How much louder has the world gotten? Since then, even. That was quoted in an article, by the way, called The Importance of Private Prayer in Christianity Today. The the, the Scriptures continually call us to solitude. Uh, Examples, in quietness and in confidence is your strength, Isaiah 30 and verse 15. Be still and know that I am God, Psalm 46 and 10. Uh, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you, Isaiah 26 and verse 3. Jesus pursued and encouraged solitude. Mark 6, 31, he says, come away by yourselves to a lonely place and rest a while. And then on the night of his betrayal, he commanded his disciples in Matthew 26, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. We can be so distracted from the solitude that we need with our God. A British preacher, John Henry Jowett, wrote the following, and he wrote this primarily for ministers of the gospel, but it it applies to us all. 
He says, I am profoundly convinced that one of the greatest perils which besets us is a restless scattering of energies over an amazing multiplicity of interests, which leaves no margin of time or strength for receiving and absorbing communion with God. We are tempted to always be on the run and to measure our fruitfulness by our pace. We are not always doing the most business when we seem to be most busy. We may think we are truly busy when we are really only restless. And a little intentional solitude would greatly enrich our returns. We are successful only as we are God-possessed. And scrupulous appointments in the upper room with the Master will prepare us for the toil and hardships of the most strenuous campaign. That was written in 1912. We are restless and we are distracted. We need quietness and solitude, quietly waiting on God. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. And so I would, in a very practical way, encourage you folks to read the Psalms. Whatever else you do in your Bible reading, that's wonderful. Read the Psalms. One of the most helpful things to me is to be read a psalm based on the day of the year. So leave a little extra time on day 119, right? But generally, that's, it's, it's a valuable investment of time, and you're reading through the psalms, and you're, you're, you can pray them back to God. A wonderful resource for that would be a book by Ken Boa, a handbook to prayer, praying Scripture back to God. We quietly wait. And in doing so, we submit to God's will. Submission. We can either respond to God angrily or rebelliously based upon the situations of life, or we can submit to His sovereign will. You're very familiar with Job. Job did this. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Our only chance at victory or success is with God. He is our rock. He is our salvation. And and I think the question we should ask ourselves is this. If God can save our souls from eternal damnation, can He not aid us through the trials of this life? Now again, we know the answer to that is yes. And then the trials of life come our way and it's like, oh, why can't I remember that? He is our fortress amidst the earthquakes of life. The word only here, or God alone, for God only, it's emphasized in this psalm. It's, it's an emphasis from David on the concept that we will enjoy God's peace in the midst of life's most, most threatening moments when God only, God alone, is our salvation and refuge. It's interesting that even though David was in the midst of what seems to be a very threatening situation, this psalm does not contain any prayer. One commentator notes this, there is scarcely another psalm that reveals such an absolute and undisturbed peace in which confidence in God is so completely unshaken and in which assurance is so strong that not even one single petition is voiced throughout the psalm. And yet I think we know that David had a life of prayer, a life of communicating with God. And by the way, that can look more like walking through your day and saying, help me, God, than 
scheduling 10-minute blocks of time where you say, I'm going to pray. Right? Have a conversation with God that never ends. So we wait quietly for God, even despite active enemies. And we will face attacks. And David notes this here in verses 3 and 4, and he notes that he, it, it seems in verse 3 he's, he's talking about himself when he says, how long will you attack a man to batter him? He's basically saying, look, I'm already down, and, and now it's getting even worse. And yet he waits quietly for God. Whether it be death, the threat of death, whether it be despair, he notes in this section, or distrust, or hypocrisy, they bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. In the midst of all of this, we quietly wait for God. Point number two, we patiently hope in God. And we see this in verses 5 through 10. It's interesting, this section begins basically by repeating the very first phrase of the psalm. It's changed just a little bit, but for God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence. Uh, we never get to a point in life, I don't believe, where trials don't affect us in some way. So we have to fight again and again to regain our peace with God. And part of that fight is thinking the right things, meditating on the right things. And so these are the things that David is meditating on. Because of who God is, we can trust Him and hope in Him. Meditate, uh, reiterate, talk to yourself. Again, I would quote Martin Lloyd-Jones here, and, and he says, we kind of pick up mid-thought here, but he's, it's this idea of like, what do you do when you're dealing with these dark times? And he says, you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is and what God is and what God has done and what God has pledged Himself to do. Then having done that, end on this great note, defy yourself and defy other people, and defy the devil and the whole world, and say with this man, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance, who is also the health of my countenance and my God. That's Martin Lloyd-Jones commenting on Psalm 42, 43. But it is very appropriate here as well, as we patiently hope in God. We speak God's truth to ourselves. And David repeats this truth again in this very psalm. He is our rock. He is our salvation. He is our fortress. And by the way, there is a little bit of a difference here. Folks, it's not that the promise is we won't be shaken, right? It's that we won't be greatly shaken. We're not going to be toppled over. God will rescue us, even if that means He takes us home to eternity, right? And this is the key here, by the way. We have to have eyes to see into eternity. If we're captivated by the temporal, we don't understand this. God's promises are rooted in the resurrection. They're rooted in eternity. No human, no enemy, no situation can reach me when I am sheltered by God. It's very interesting in this section here. Um, Particularly, starting in verse 5, David uses the personal pronoun mine nine times by my count. He, he, he's, this is a very personal testimony, and, he, and he's exalting God by, uh, by affirming all the things that he knows God will do. 
And he says, then he, then he transitions in verse 8, and he, said, he moves from like this personal testimony, and then he tells other people, trust him at all times. And I love this phrase. Pour out your heart before him. I think we probably have all used that before in the context of prayer, that, that you would just pour out your heart to God. And yet sometimes I think we talk in like Christianese and it's like, well, what does that even mean? You know? Well, here's what I think it would mean. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. In other words, the idea is that your heart is like a a pitcher, something that contains water or a bucket filled with liquid, and it fills up with all sorts of things, and it gets heavier the fuller it gets, and eventually it gets so heavy that you can't bear it anymore. It may get full of junk, so there's no room for anything healthy or good. This could be good things, bad things, you're bearing burdens, whatever it is, and David says, pour that out in the presence of God. Pour out your heart to God. Uh, I, I, I think very much of First Peter 5 and, and verse 7. Casting all your anxieties upon Him. And by the way, that's the only place in the Bible that I know of that gives us a visible, tangible expression of what it is like to be humble. Because that, it's all one thought there. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God by casting your anxieties upon Him. And so when we bear these things, and we don't pour out our heart to God, and we don't cast our anxieties upon God, we are essentially saying, I I, I got this, God. It's almost a practical atheism. We're acting as if God is not really there. And we need to unload upon Him because He invites us to. And He alone is your refuge. As He continues here, now we go down to Verse 8, trust Him, pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge. And then He he warns us here. Folks, He says, don't trust in humanity. And I I think, you know, I I have to say, you know, you can kind of take offense at that, but I'm quite sure it's true. Folks, we, we are not trustworthy when compared to God. Don't, don't trust humanity. He, he, David's pretty, pretty blunt right here. Um, he, he says we are all equally untrustworthy. When, it, when he uses that phrase, um, they, they're, they're but a breath. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion in the balance as they go up. He's basically saying, folks, we, we don't even register on the trustworthy scale. And so he's essentially saying... In, in those moments of life, you don't turn to your friends. You don't turn to the quote-unquote right people. You turn to God. In God alone. Derek Kidner gives us a helpful clarification here. He, he says here, the point here is not so much that we have nothing to fear from man as that we have nothing to hope from him. That's helpful. Folks, if you are looking to other people, even good and godly people, for your ultimate hope, they will fail you. It's too much of a burden upon them. Only God can do that. 
So put your hope in God. And also we should not trust our resources. Trust in God alone. So we quietly wait for God. We patiently hope in God. And then finally we humbly submit to God. Verses 11 and 12. Matthew Henry says of these verses, To some God speaks twice, and they will not hear once, but to others He speaks but once, and they hear twice. You see what he's talking about there? Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, the power belongs to God, and that you, O Lord, to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. And the question there, folks, is this. Are we, do we hear that? Power belongs to God. He's powerful. Everything that God desires to do, He can do. We're not like that. I used to play a lot of basketball. I don't anymore. I don't want to get hurt. But as you well know, I'm not tall. I, I wish I could dunk. Ain't going to happen. Best I could do is I touch the bottom of the rim. That was the best I could do. We have our limitations is the point, folks. <laughs> There's so much we can't do. God is powerful. Everything that He desires to do, He does. This is part of His holiness, His uniqueness. God is in a category all by Himself. And, and this is why... The emphasis of this song is for God alone, only in God do I rest. Because He's so unique, He's so holy, He's so powerful, there's none like Him. But not only is is He powerful, He's loving with a steadfast love. And therefore, He will justly judge us, and all of our enemies. I think it's good to remember that, folks. When, we, when we're ready for God to judge others, we should, it's probably a good time to examine our own hearts. If anyone opposes God's power and resists His love, they will know His justice. And those who wait on the Lord and hope in the Lord and submit to the Lord will know the joy of being protected by the loyal love of our God. And so it should not surprise us that it's these very things that Satan attacks in our lives. He attacks the character of our God. It's sinister. He tempts you with the thought that if God is all-powerful, He could have not even allowed these trials to come into your life or to the lives of people that you love. And then he goes a bit further. He says, and therefore, he must not love you. And this is where we must, by faith, learn from those who have gone before us all throughout the Scriptures. This is the beauty of the body. Those who have been through the deep waters and come out and know things like Joseph knew in Genesis 50 where he said, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And so by faith we affirm both God's power and His love. Martin Luther's wife, her name was Catherine. She saw him discouraged and unresponsive for quite some time. And so one day she dressed up in black funeral clothes. And Luther asked her why. 
And she said, someone has died. And she said, who? And he said, it seems, uh, I'm sorry, Luther asked who? And she said, it seems that God must have died. And Luther got her point. Since God hadn't died, he needed to stop acting as if he had. So what can we do when life seems silent and life is dark? We can pray with biblical writers who cried out to God. The gospel delivers us from the lie that God is not to be trusted. That God doesn't really love me. That I had better take matters into my own hands and grab for myself what my heart so restlessly craves. The the gospel delivers us from that thinking. We only need one thing to survive and thrive. And you have it if you have God. As I close, one of the reasons we should be silent before God, I think, to wait quietly before God, is is because we know that God is not silent. He has spoken. And so there's times where I think we need to be quiet and listen to what God has already said. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. God has spoken in His Son. Nowhere is God's power and love and justice more clearly displayed than on the cross. And so it is in the gospel of Jesus Christ that we see most clearly that our rest is found in God alone, in Christ alone. Jesus conquered death. He rose again. And this is our hope. Uh, the big picture, folks, here, I think, I think the greatest battle for people who are struggling, and even people who are not struggling, is to remember this world is not our final destination. Life is really, really, really short, and eternity is really, really, really long. And that's what makes sense of all this, is, is that... If I find my ultimate and only rest in God alone, I am truly living as if I really believe in eternity. I really believe that there is a God who has prepared a place for those who love Him. I really believe that there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and that God will wipe away all tears from our eyes. And so, we rest in God. We wait for God. We hope in God. And we submit to God because He alone is all-powerful and God alone is all-loving. And so I encourage you today, find your rest in God alone. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I thank You for Your Word. Lord, would You continue to do Your work in us, giving us eyes to see Eternal truth. Eyes to see beyond um, the distractions of the temporal. Whether they be incredibly good or incredibly bad. 
Help us to find our rest in God alone. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.